Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 255th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast who's happy to announce our merger with Amazon to bring you reserved list fractional crypto timeshares. Stay tuned for more details. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey guys, good evening. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, before we get into our agenda this week, which I'm sure is a great mystery to all, uh, we should probably apologize to the listenership for a couple of snafus last week. Uh, apparently, the two of us were constantly referring to Kaldheim as Kaladesh. Um, I've probably also written the set code for Kaldheim as KLD all week, and I'm not even sure, having not checked, whether I was correct or not. I'm pretty sure that's the Kaladesh set code, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we Apparently, we did make that mistake a bunch. Uh, I r- apologize for nothing, but you're, <laughs> you can <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Kaldheim set code is KHM for the record. KHM. And uh, I also pointed out at one point that Renin 6 was mostly a one trick pony, suggesting that it's mostly played in Jund, when in fact, uh, or at least in modern, uh, in fact, it shows up in the four color Omnath Uro builds that we've been reviewing in the top eights for weeks. So, usually is three copies, as we will see as we get into these top eights. So, apologies to those of you that like to keep us on our toes. Thanks for keeping us honest. Yeah. All right. So segments for the week. Yeah. Segment one, top MTGO movers, metagame week in review. What's going on in Pioneer and Modern? Segment two, our top paper movers, a significant offering this week, um, backed by some reserveless pressure, along with a little bit of the top moto movers. Segment three, our paper cards to watch, a handful of cards James and I like the outlook of. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week, um, looking at more of the business side this week, we have the Channel Fireball merger that was announced. So we'll talk about that and try and wrap our head around what's going on uh, and what that might mean. And it sounds like miniature market is getting out of the game. So let's start up here on segment one, our Moto Week in Review. Uh, starting off with a big Yorion deck in Pioneer with a big pile of dual flip cards, dual face cards. Are we calling, is the F and DFC dual, it's got to be dual face, right? It's dual yeah, face Yeah, dual face card. cards, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about, a, we've seen variations on this deck uh, in Pioneer and Modern, basically since these cards debuted, but... Their persistence in these formats leads me to believe that our callouts for many of these as good specs are very much going to prove true. I was looking at a huge brick of... Uh, uh, what's the card? 
turn temper symbiosis earlier today and you can make mm-hmm. cases for agadim's awakening i think more or less all of this is going to get there given enough time whether or not these decks are still around they're still going to find a home just because of the unique features of these cards being lands on one side and spells on the other so this pioneer challenge uh was the pioneer showcase challenge from january 18th and first place was another one of these uh decks with basically no lands so oops all spells variant uh for pioneer purposes and the interesting part here is this is an 80 card deck not a 60 card deck because they're running Yorion in the sideboard, which I'm presuming is there so that they can flicker Balistrad spies and under city, uh, not under city informers, but maybe silver smote ghouls. No. I'll be, I'll be honest. I don't even want to try and guess without digging into it because I'm just going to end up being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like trying to digest something like that. Well, I mean, so you can quickly. you can certainly flicker Haunted Dead. That puts a one one white spirit token. If you flicker Balistrad Spy, that's what triggers the cascading through your deck. Um, very, it's just wild to see Yorion getting tugged in on this. I, I saw people talking about having sold some Yorions in the low mid thirties, and a joke was made in the Discord that half of the remaining sellers on TCG Player were all Discord members. One yeah. of our channels lists everybody's stores online. Part of keeping everybody honest is is keeping track on who's talking up a card and may or may not have inventory posted. And my commentary was, I think you're probably early selling Yorion. I would yank your inventory or move it up to at least 50 bucks um, because I think it's going to follow Lurus up the chain. Zero chance you see these companions, re- companions reprinted anytime soon. They're seeing persistent play despite the the rules change the foil extended arts are already in short supply all of that leads me to believe that there is still more gains to be to be had i could see yorion being anywhere from 50 to 100 a year from now in foil extended art it is having a good run here and i i would agree with you that those extended art foils are looking better and better and i didn't pick up any when we talked about it just because we had so many to so many cards and it's one of the ones that i definitely regret not having moved in on and i might see if i can still find a cheap copy floating around i mean it seems like even grabbing a, the cheapest 30 dollar copy you can find somewhere on the premise of going to 60 within a year i think is completely reasonable my original call was at 12 or something and i've got a nice thick stack that i picked up in japan uh around that price, both Japanese and English foil extended arts. I, I think I have posted a test copy in and around 50. And if, when that moves, then I'll take another look at the market and reconsider. I, so I can't figure out what you would flicker with Yorion that wouldn't be Balustrade Spy, I guess. It's like the only thing. Well, prized amalgam triggers on things coming into the battlefield, but not based on Yorion. So I guess it's, I, I guess world spine worm doesn't do it either. That's doesn't what it do dies. it either. Uh, yeah. Under city informer sacrifice. It's gotta, it's gotta be about the spy, I guess. Yeah. And it's non land, so it's not hitting your, but you don't have any lands anyways. I mean, you have the flip lands. They do well, have like, a rec- they have a rec- one reclamation sage in the sideboard <laughs> that yeah. they can go to work on with Yorion if they want to. Hmm. Yeah. 
It's the best I can come up with. Alrighty. So anyway, second place is a pretty interesting looking green-red mid-range deck. We've seen variants of this in Pioneer since about this time last year. But there's a couple of things worth flagging here. Four Glorybringer, four Gruel Spellbreaker, four Bonecrusher Giant, two Clothis, four Lovestruck Beast, ported over from Pioneer, Aronis the Indomitable, and a Yasova Dragonclaw. <laughs> I haven't seen that card tabled in a while. They run a Great Hinge, two Turn Timber Symbiosis, yet another DFC deck, and two Crater's Claws. This is like Russian bulk rares I have from cracking uh, Cons of Tarkir boxes looking for Russian foil fetches. <laughs> Got a pile of Crater's Claws. That's the deal X damage to target creature player, but it has Ferocious. So if you have a creature with power four or greater, you get plus two on the damage. Yeah, this is uh, just Pioneer Ferocious deck, I guess. Um, looks like it's playing it pretty straight, just beating people up with red-green cards. There's uh, two Kiora Behemoth Beckoner in here. Uh, a nice uh, foil <laughs> anime option, of course, out of the Japanese war boxes. Two and a green or a blue. Uh, in this case, a green, since there's no blue in this deck. Uh, whenever a creature with power four or greater enters the battlefield under your control, draw a card. So for three mana, you're getting a draw card when you cast other cards out of your hand. And then for minus one, you can untap target permanent, which allows them to do fancy things with Elvish Mystic. Uh, lets them fool around with Glorybringer, because if you exert Glorybringer to kill something, it doesn't untap on the next turn. But you can untap it with Kiora and do it again the next turn. Yeah. That's cute. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so green-red, mid-range, uh, pretty interesting. And then you've got four-color Omnath Uro in third, mono-green Planewalkers in fourth, four-color Omnath Uro in fifth, Esper Yorion in sixth. Uh, we've seen variations of this along the way as well. Ten Planeswalkers here, uh, four Teferi Time Raveler, three Narset Parter of Veils are the big ones, and then a whole bunch of creatures with cool come-into-play effects because this is a Yorion deck. Uh one Atris, three Charming Prince, Sin Collector, three Skyclave Apparition, and two Yorion. Uh, they run an Amiria's Call and a Seagate Restoration as well. And you see a pile of pathways across a bunch of these lists. The green-red deck had the four uh, green-red pathways, and then two Bright Climb and two Clear Water in this Yorion deck. Seventh place was Red-White Burn, which we've seen quite a lot of, and then uh, Blue-White Spirits in eighth with uh, nothing too new or exciting jumping out at me. You know, we've talked about it a couple times before, so we don't get into it every cast, but those extended art foils of the dual flip lands seem so good. Like, it just seems so unlikely that you'll miss with those. So we're not putting them on the pick list every week because, like, we're not going to want to do that, but man... Well, I mean, part of it is that they've choice. fallen off. Part of it is that they've fallen off hard. They they have definitely, in the short term, showcase cards, which these are, tend to underperform expectations massively, because they're available in quantity in the various formulations from the set. Unlike foil extended arts, which are only in the collector box booster boxes, so tend to be very front loaded and then basically disappear. The other thing is that the pathways haven't made nearly the impact overall that people may have expected, including wizards. I was talking to somebody today uh, in our discord about the wholesale price of the ultimate secret layer two, which is going to have all 10 pathways being something like, like 
high 60s US, which means you're basically paying like the the LGSs that are being offered this product direct from Wizards are going to be paying six to seven dollars US per copy. And keep in mind that you can still get these things dirt cheap right now. So Wizards clearly thought this these were going to be a much bigger deal than they actually are. And I have pretty solid fears that that Ultimate Secret Layer 2 is going to be on Wizards' regret list for 2021. Hmm. Because let's yes. say that the that means the retail price of that is going to be 100 bucks. That means your local LGS is asking you to commit $10 per borderless clear water pathway or whatever. And they just gave you borderless ones. It's not even like they, they were absent in Zendikar Rising and now they're giving you your first opportunity at these. They already exist in both the collector boosters for Zendikar Rising and Cal Time, which hasn't even come out yet. <laughs> and you can and you can pick up the foils of Clearwater Pathway for eight or nine dollars right now. And so I agree that long term those are gonna get there. Clearwater Pathway, Murkwater Pathway is some of the most beautiful land art that's ever existed in Magic. And as a blue-black duel, it will see plenty of play in uh, in EDH. And if you look at the EDH stats, they're real solid on those lands so far. Uh, nothing to be concerned about, that's for sure. I think they, they last I checked, they were sitting at, let me just see, like 20, 15 to 20% of decks that could run them were running them. So they're already in the mid-3,000s or so. That's as much as you can ask for for a fresh set of duels. But well, it really feels like the ultimate secret layer pathways probably should have been shocks if you really wanted to move product and help the LGS. Well, I mean, Wizards has shown pretty clearly they don't care about helping the LGS. Uh, I, well, okay, so I want to specify that I, I wasn't referring to the pathways, though. I'm thinking more the um, the mythic ones. Oh, sorry, you're talking about DF, DFC like turn timbers and all that? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> then my diatribe was accurate, but ill-informed. Just, 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 yeah. Still, still correct. Just not quite the mark I was shooting for. Those are the more the ones I was thinking about because they're the mythics because I know we don't have any other versions of them really. Um, and those seems to be quite popular. Those are how you cheat, basically. The pathways are still lands at the end of the day. Those mythic ones, the spell lands are the ones that let you cheat. The, the counter argument to all this that is echoed in our Discord frequently is that Zendikar Rising Collector Boosters were the highest print run ever for CBs and that Wizards dumped even more of them on vendors at, towards the end of the year, which is why you can still find them around 180 when Commander Legends CBs, which apparently uh, bled print run to the Zendikar Rising CBs, that's the story I've been told, um, are pushing 300. And that makes sense. If you print way more of one and way less of another, that's exactly the situation you're going to end up in. And we've seen, you know, TCG vendors like the gaming company posting walls, 100 copies, 200 copies, 300 copies of a variety of things. So, for instance, they've got 101 copies of the borderless Clearwater Pathway uh, flip foils uh, on TCG right now. And the market's going to have to burn through all of that from you know mass cracking jobs like that here and in Europe before they can make any real headway. So that probably pushes specs out maybe three, maybe six months beyond what they would have been otherwise. And thing is, 
I, I wouldn't get the story twisted. People that are scared about specs from Zendikar Rising, if you're in a position where you can flip stuff real quick, you've got your arbitrage set up from Europe and or you're buying bricks and you're on a three to six month timeline and you're doing that consistently, sure, stick to your game plan. If you're the kind of person who has more money than time and you're on a one to two year horizon with most of your stuff, it's like you get around to selling it when you remember to pull it out of the closet, then this stuff from Zendikar Rising is full of home runs there are so many good cards in that set yeah yeah and i think that's kind of where i am too is you know even if there's a glut of product like that's fine um you know it just means it'll get churned through a little bit faster and unless you're trying to do it overnight you know to get as much liquidity as you can as fast as you can then then it's fine because uh it just means you get a longer buy-in period on cards that have clearly demonstrated they're worth time and time again now, moving on over to uh, the modern tournament of the week. Uh, let me just bring that up. It's like Goblin Charbelcher took that down again this week. We've seen that pop up a couple times now. This is in the modern super qualifier that ran on January 19th, which is higher than a modern challenge, obviously. And first place was yet another deck running a shit ton of double-faced cards aforementioned. So four Seagate Restoration, four Shattered Skull Smashing, four Tim, Tim, Turn Timber Symbiosis, four Blood Moon in the main. This one has a real like red burst mana to get there thing going on. They got three Pact of Negation, and then they got all the red red ramp. So Desperate Ritual, Manamorphose, Pyretic Ritual, and Delicate Awakening if they want to wheel their hand to find what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. That's fun. I like that. Some good tech. So variations on a theme for sure, and just further reinforcement that these flip cards are the real deal. Yeah, well, and that's and that's kind of what I was thinking of when I made the comments. Like you just you see them a lot, and you see them in different decks in different formats, and and you see them in in great quantity. They're frequent. They're, you don't see them as onesie twosie for the most part. And Maria's Call and Seagate Restoration are more prone to that, but the uh, Seagate. Restoration often can show up as a four of in the Char Belcher or Oops All Spells builds. And then you'll see Turn Timber Symbiosis as a four of, Shatter Skull Smashing as a four of. Uh, this one doesn't run the Agonim's Awakening because they don't have any black in the deck. Mm. Okay. But you see that all over the place too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So second place in the modern tournament uh, taken down by four color Omnath uh, with the three red and six that I skipped over. This is also true of the fifth place deck, which was four color Uro bring to light a variant on that concept. And then another version of the second place deck in eighth place. So nine copies of red and six in the top eight here. It's not like the card is unplayed in the absence of Jund. (laughs) Despite my earlier comments, you're really, Black, <laughs> really doubling, making a point of acknowledging that. Trying to trying to take you know, take responsibility. Uh, Black red shadow scourge in third constant uh, participant mono white, sort of combo. I mean, there's only really only one combo I noted in here. It's the Heliod Suncrown walking ballista combo. The rest of this looks more like a Death and Taxes brew. It's two Archon of Emeria, four Oriok Champion, four Giver of Runes, four Heliod Suncrowned, four Luminarch Aspirant, four Ranger Captain of Eos, four Skyclave Apparition, four Walking Ballista, three Path to Exile, and four Ethervile. This is a this is an interesting list. 
Um, because it's more, you know, basically just a a mid rangey ish white deck, and you don't see that a lot in modern. I mean, especially a mono white list, right? Like that's just uncommon. And I think we flagged the first time we caught Luminarch Aspirant show up in one of these white lists that the foil extended art is a dollar to two dollars on TCG Player. Gaming company, have... gaming company has fifty eight copies at a buck fifty. I, I I would have trouble throwing money at this card because it just looks so basic. Yeah, but I don't know how many how many I... white decks are going to get played a year from now that need the card. I also have problems telling people to like Luminarch Aspirant. Yeah. Two mana 1-1 one, one, that puts a 1-1 one, one counter on another creature every turn. Mm-hmm. <sighs> That's so slow. It, it, it just did not strike. It, it looked like it was going straight to the bulk pile and staying there when I was pulling this out of boxes. So The Archon of Ameria is a card I like the most here, but I think those are too expensive already. I think they got quite cheap, actually. I, I do remember an early pump, but then a lot of the inventory caught up. And as with many cards from Zendikar Rising, I think... Yeah, two bucks. Oh, that's not bad. For the Gaming Company has 63 copies at 253 Oh, you know what it was? Is I looked at this today. It wasn't that it was too expensive. It was there was too much supply. That's what it was. But this is the 3 mana 2-3 that um is a rule of silence and also all your opponents non-basic lands enter the battlefield tapped that's a lot of hate bear action on a single creature like no one can play more than one spell and also all of their lands come into play tapped pretty much um and if you're playing edh it probably is all their lands that's a that's a hammer right there man and you can vial it into play in response to somebody cracking a fetch or something (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which seems like probably like, you know, that, that that's uh, incremental, but just like nabbing people's lands like that is really obnoxious. Maybe, I mean, maybe a little less so because they're only allowed to play one card a turn, um, but even still, that's uh, interesting. So the four-color Uro deck that was in fifth is worth a look because it has elements from the normal four color omnath hero builds but a omnath is absent instead they have four bring delight and two scape shift and then they have valakuts of course in their land base and so this is basically three ren and six three uro a bunch of control cards cryptic command force negation grow spiral lightning bolt remand spell snare and then bring delight and and scape shift to get off your escape shift combo. This reads basic more like a, I don't, this doesn't feel like a Uro deck. Well, okay. I mean, I guess it is. It basically escape shift. Somebody pushed Uro into mostly. Uro and Ren and six get the pat, get slide into the list because of their land interactions, right? Uro putting extra lands in play and Ren and six, uh, bringing lands from your graveyard to your hand give you a bunch of land manipulation setting up the scape shift. Yeah. Yeah. So and, I, and presenting th- constant threats. Yeah. This is an interesting uh, spin on 
these four color lists. It is it looks on the surface to be similar, but it's it's actually coming at things from a, quite a different angle. And then in sixth place, we've got you know I said the Jund was largely absent in the format. Here we have the like the rock. <laughs> this is black green Jund, uh, where you basically have all the usual things you would expect, and then three Lurus of the Dream Den in the main because you want to be able to cast Liliana of the Veil. So you don't have them in the sideboard. Hmm. Hmm. So this is yeah. basically, this is a straight rock deck that has Lurus for recursion value. Yeah. Huh. And they get to cool. lean on some Mishra's Baubles and Nile Spell Bombs. Boy, that's, uh, that's a plan, huh? It's a lot of, Hmm. Okay, whatever. He did well. Sixth place. And then seventh is a Sultai Uro Wilderness Reclamation build that is basically Sultai Control, 24 instance, Abrupt Decays, Cryptic Commands, Factor Fiction, 4 Factor Fiction, 4 Fatal Push, 3 Force of Negation, 4 Growth Spiral, a Nexus of Fate, and 4 Remand, with 1 Search for Ascanta and 2 Wilderness Reclamation, only creature in the deck, Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath. Worth pointing out that there was pros on Twitter this week calling for Uro uh, to possibly be banned uh, in Legacy and uh, for Oko to be banned in Legacy first and foremost. And folks thinking, like, one (laughs) green-blue is just a very dangerous CMC if it was printed in the last couple of years. that's, uh, That's a good... It's a good monocost, man. I'm I'm currently sitting monocost. on five or six foil borderless Okos. Pro- might not be smart to be sitting on those for much longer, because their primary place to be played is Legacy. In EDH, also sees significant play. Tough to say where I want to be if that's the only place you can play it. Do you- did you say Uro or Oko? Oko. Oko. I have uh, several of those as well that I have not sold yet. The foil, the foil borderless ones. It's in 8,000 EDH decks. 8% of all green-blue decks run it. And that's So fine. that's probably enough. And that's probably true of Omnath and Uro too. I mean, if they get booted out of competitive formats, unless it's like both modern and legacy in depending on which card we're talking about um edh might be enough anyway i mean they're still so good i I guess omnath is probably because it's for color suffers the most if it's not played competitively uro being green blue and edh is going to be just fine especially since any of this band like oak like uro and oko (laughs) when's the next reprint on those cards who knows Many moons. Could be a Jace the Mind Sculptor situation where they drop it into some ancillary or premium product a ways down the road. Long after the dust has settled on any future bannings. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uro. Yeah. Uro. I mean, Oko is useful in EDH because you come down and you turn someone's stupid crap into an elk and he goes up in loyalty yeah it's so crazy you just, you just annoy the board by turning people's best creatures into uh, elks 
and then like Rathian or whatever. That, that's not even necessary. Omnath, or not Omnath, uh, Uro. Uro is a little more value engine which I'm like lukewarm on because there's so much of that to begin with. But at the same time, it's pretty efficient at it. But Oko does seem like he has more of a home. Meanwhile, four-factor fiction in modern in 2021. <laughs> in 2021, my yeah, God. They People could not get away do. with four-factor fiction in modern any point. When, when was this legal? Was this, this always been legal in modern? Hold on. This has always been legal in modern. What are the prints on this? Where was this put into modern? I think this was only put in the modern and modern horizons. Right? That could uh, be true. Yeah, I think it was. Because, yeah. Okay, so this wasn't put into modern to modern horizon. So it's only been two or three years that it's been legal. Year Even and a half. still. Mo- wait, modern horizons is a year and a half ago? Was it summer 20... 2019? 2019? Yeah. It was last summer? Yeah. Well, not last summer, but the summer before. Well, I guess I'm still thinking of 2020 summer as having been this summer. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Time is dilating. It is. Uh, Even still, you have seen very little factor fiction, I think, since it was printed. This is a cute deck. Because if if people fixate on a card like Uro, or Red and Six, or Omnath, and you don't look deeper into what else is in the list, you can easily be distracted. Because the fact of the matter is, those cards aforementioned are so powerful. And so flexible in, in the ways that they can benefit decks. They tend to be sliding into a variety of strategies. Yeah. All right, so to wrap this up, uh, we've got an eighth place four-color Uro Omnath, which is uh, much more straightforward looking, similar to what we've seen recently. Formats still look fun, as far as I'm concerned. It's a real shame that this era is not getting played in paper, because this is probably the most interesting modern spin in some time. Um if you're okay playing against Uro and Omnath. <laughs> it looks yeah. like you have plenty of other options. You Charbelcher slapped them all down, and you got mono-white strategies. We've seen various versions of green-white creature combo throughout the last several months. All sorts of mid-range and control shells. Uh, you know, Jund, Rock variants. There's plenty going on. All right, yeah. so moving on over to segment two, Top Paper Movers of the Week. Wow, this could we could have spent four hours going through the number of cards that have moved in the last week or two that we haven't I, already talked about. I pulled it up and I was like, "What the hell is all this crap? Like, there's so much." It's and it's nothing. There's so much more that's been on the move. Old foils of all varieties under pressure. Secret layer cards under pressure. Reserve list under pressure revised rudy's putting out videos that everybody should be buying up vesuvian doppelgangers and whatever because wheel of fortune revised is now pushing 500 plus getting posted at a thousand as people try to bait bait the the fomo wild wild stuff like we probably haven't seen a push this hard on reserve list since 2017 maybe yeah i don't i'll be honest i don't quite understand what's going on here like is this? It's, it, it's worth reviewing the the variety of factors that are in play because we have talked about some of this all the way through twenty twenty. I mean, 
reserve list cards are always you know kind of going off but like this is a this is a ton of stuff changing and the last time well I, okay i didn't say the last time i remember there was like the bitcoin boom triggered a bunch of this something we had another one since then too although i'm at a loss of what that one was well i mean the factor the covid factors are still in play so vendors still cannot run in-person buy lists and with great more and more places around the world including north america being in lockdown you know here in toronto we're basically in full lockdown right now the Nobody, there's no major events, and it, it's not looking based on how fast, how slowly vaccinations are being rolled out across North America that there's likely to be major events until possibly 2022. Um, I, I don't, I can see LGSs in some regions possibly getting back to business in the fall for people that can prove they've been vaccinated, but that's going to be a trickle of of overall play versus a full GP announcement. I could, I could see it possibly being true that cfb events or some reincarnated version thereof doesn't get back to business on major events until q2 of 2022 entirely possible uh yeah yeah seems reasonable the current pace of vaccination rollout especially in the u.s it's a little better in canada but not a lot better but in u.s looking real terrible guys you guys are buying thousands of doses and letting them rot like the ones that have to be hyper-refrigerated or whatever. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of madness. So taking all of that into consideration, um, you know, there's just no in-person buy listing going on. Very little. So basically the only buy lists that are seeing frequent activity are the vendors that were well-positioned to be running online buy lists. You know, your card kingdoms. There's a new one via... Uh, mtg deal slash james hugh which is uh japanese buylist.com that we've been sending a lot of stuff into i think i sent forty five hundred dollars worth of product into there that this month um Jeez. for like 120 percent plus gains in less than a year um because there's japan still seems to be a, a pretty solid out for the folks that are uh arbitraging over in that direction we've still got Plenty of people that did not have interrupted income, call it the whales of Magic Gathering, stuck at home, can't really go anywhere, can't spend any money on vacations, no point in buying new clothes, only so much takeout you can purchase. So if you've got a household income in the 150k range, you've probably got more disposable income than you are used to having if you haven't been interrupted by the crisis. And those people are getting into the habit of spending even more time shopping online. Mm -hmm. add, add to that that you finally got a stimulus package in the U.S. where you got checks sent out in the last couple of weeks. My sales on eBay have taken off like a rocket ship. I haven't been, I think May, May and June and July of 2020 and May and June of 2019 are the only other months that have been this big for me. I'm headed for an eight or $9,000 U.S. month online. Wow. And... And a lot. I've got to attribute some of that to people having who don't who aren't in crisis, who don't really need that money to suddenly having, you know, a chunk that they could throw at reserve lists, dual lands, whatever. Now, stir into the pot of all that. You've got vendors who are who are paying attention to all of these details and thinking to themselves, no more buy lists for like maybe another year. And 
YouTubers making hey buy reserve list content continuously and then you've got the pokemon craze and the sports card craze echoing in the background and people thinking like well if a pokemon box can be three hundred thousand dollars maybe magic boxes should be more expensive too like we've had our discord members reporting those of them that had old sealed product have had just ridiculous returns if they flipped recently like up 400 500 600 percent versus their ins talking about people selling like stronghold boxes in the thousands of dollars like just stronghold yeah just craziness you, i mean homelands and fallen empires boxes are going for way too much like way outsized to their ev i mean fallen empires literally is a set with nothing nothing in it <laughs> there's no big pull in that set it's like it's, it's the weakest set maybe in of all time in magic homelands being debatably pretty close and even those boxes are very expensive right now You've got collector's edition stuff going through the roof. Like somebody pointed out a Ontario, Canada-based vendor that had a bunch of uh, CE, ICE, Moxon in stock and some other Power 9 at like prices from a month ago. And the vultures descended in about two and a half minutes. Like I, I snapped off two near mint Moxes at five or 600 US for collector's edition gold border without even thinking twice. Because I'm convinced that whether or not <clears throat> they show a retrace in the near future, give it six months, 12 months, 18 months, they're probably going to be $1,000 plus if they aren't already. Jeez. It's it's a real heavy, heavy time in collectibles right now. And then some of this is FOMO for sure. Like it's not just vendors scooping up 100 copies of something, although I definitely think vendors, some of the vendors with deeper pockets are going deep. But it's also... Anyone that's paying attention, following along, whether they are MTG Finance, you know, inclined or just adjacent, just collectors who happen to pay attention to the trends, if they start seeing Rudy making videos, hey, hey, buy this, this thing jumped, it's tripled, it's doubled, get it now while you can, and other people are echoing that kind of content, and then people like us are talking about the results of that, those people are just going to be like, well, do I want a Wheel of Fortune or not? If the answer is yes, will there ever be a better time to buy it? Probably not. Could it retrace 20, 25, 30%? Sure. But will it then pump 12 to 18 months from now up another 100 or 200? Probably. I, I pulled a, a bizarre of Baghdad out of my long-term stash today, the stuff that I don't have up for sale. I got it on Puka Trade in 2015 for $600 worth of Puka points. Oh, I'm sorry. Which card? Bizarre of Baghdad. Bizarre. So... 600 Puka points is like basically I sent out $500 of random cards. Yeah, I was going to say. Five and $10, $20 cards here and there. Did that for a couple months. Had a couple thousand worth of Puka points built up. Somebody sent me a foreign black border volcanic island, which I later flipped. And the bazaar I've been holding the whole time. The lowest bazaar near mint on eBay right now is like 4,500 US. <laughs> This is a card that I think we called on cast. I got to go back and check. I think we called it around a thousand to go to fifteen hundred, and a couple of years later, it might be in the mid thousands, depending on who you believe. And it's definitely worth flagging that if you want to know what's actually happening, the posted prices on TCG are near useless. A lot of the indexes that aren't filtering their results from TCG are also useless as a result. 
eBay results in terms of actual sold versus posted is relevant, but make sure you're filtering by uh, timeline so that you can see how that's been developing. And then you definitely want to be checking out the reserve list groups on Facebook because I think that's where a lot of the action and the old school groups, that's where a lot of the action, relevant action takes place and you'll get a much better sense of real prices on a day-to-day. Okay. Which makes sense, I guess. Especially for stuff that's these wild prices. It gives you a closer look at what people are actually spending money on and buying. Well, and like I, at this, say that Bazaar can really change hands today for $4,000 and my in is 600 like five years ago. I'm still not inclined to sell. Because <laughs> every time those change hands, you get a little bit of a ratchet. And extend that out under two, three years, all these $5,000 cards, $3,000 cards could be $7,000 cards. The $4,000, $5,000 cards could be $10,000 cards. Your guy's cradles where you were like musing aloud at one point, not so long ago on cast, is this going to be a $1,000 card? I think the answer is yes, it well could be. And that, that was when you could get them for under 300. The Mm -hmm. judge, judge foil wheels and cradles are could easily end up being two, three, four, five thousand dollars themselves within five years, because they're drained out to near nothing already. So, I'm not selling any of that stuff. I haven't, I haven't put anything up for sale. Like I don't care if this stuff retraces some reasonable amount, somewhere between ten and forty percent, because I believe that we're still on a, a a wild upward curve, and the only thing that can really dampen it is massive widespread economic disaster and keep in mind that even in the 2008 crisis my magic did well because impulse purchases um cigarettes booze magic cards um and the other thing is that just collectibles is on a, is on a huge global upswing that is very unlikely to be interrupted the the brands around which collectibles rotate have become the core of culture globally. And that kind of trend line is not worth fighting against. Uh, yeah. I, all of this, I mean, all of this makes sense. I, uh, yeah, I, I'm, it's a lot there to process. Um, I mean, the, the global catastrophe thing, uh, I still haven't changed my opinion that climate change is a mm-hmm. uh, what is that term I'm looking for? Uh, <clears throat> the swinging axe that slowly works its way down. A, a slow motion guillotine. Yeah, yeah, it's like the sort of Damocles, not sort of Damocles, but something like that is hanging over all of our heads, and that is going to come to bear at some point. But that might be five years from now and it might be 25 it's hard to know um but yeah i mean all this <clears> stuff <throat> seems to be wild now in the meantime so i i don't foresee the direction on this changing anytime in the particularly near future well and the other the other factor that we i didn't even talk about in detail that you briefly mentioned was crypto i mean crypto is back on the menu because bitcoin Got up to 40 grand, dropped down to 32. Now it's back up to 37 today, a week later. There are definitely crypto exits into safe harbors going on. And to be clear about what that means, say you're running a crypto farm in Quebec. 
you're generating X amount of crypto. Some of that you need to turn into liquid capital because you can't pay everybody that you need to pay with crypto. You also can very easily hide money from the gov if you turn it into stuff that you can turn into cash. So you take $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, you buy um, you know, $10,000 magic cards, then those magic cards go up by 1500 and then you flip those on the floor at some future GP for 1500 cash a piece. Wild. That works. Yeah. And you walk out the door with untraceable cash assets. So not that I'm endorsing it, but it's happening. So <clears throat> people need to be aware that all of this in the mix is all of it. None of it is the singular answer. There's just a lot of factors in play right now that are, that are I, driving the collectibles market pretty wild. This does seem to also have a bit of a... Uh, self-perpetuating momentum to it as well where you know there's always a little bit of reserveless movement but it you know you get a little bit going and then somebody says something like we you know those those uh those covid stimulus checks went out in the u.s recently people have been getting those lately so you've got a little bit of extra action you get a couple personalities who tweet about it and that might kind of create some momentum and then suddenly all these people are saying oh i need to go grab some more stuff because things are going on and uh i guess that's part of it as well I mean, let's talk about some details lion's eye diamond from mirage is it a 450 dollars card or a 650 dollars card if you're going by the lowest pre- posted prices it's somewhere in the mid 600s all of a sudden so 44 percent gains very short period of time. I've got a copy of The Abyss from Legends sitting in my Atraxa deck, which is the spec deck uh, in top loaders. And I think I paid 286 for it. And it, I think it's LP. Is that a $600 card or a $900 card? Because there are basically no copies posted below that level right now. So is that 50% if, gains this week or is it bullshit? If it's Italian, it's less than we want it to be. And I say we because I have one too. <laughs> uh, Mine's English. Oh, I think you thought you said yours was Italian. No, I, I've never no. bought Italian legends. That always spooked me. I always end up with them just via like trading or what have you, or um, yeah. But I, I, yeah, it's still uh, still quite a pricey card. Well, I mean, I think some of the Italian stuff's going to get there because you know Italian tabernacles are worth a lot of money because English tabernacles just got ridiculous. So yeah. the Italian copies chased, and I think we'll see that with stuff like Italian The Abyss is going to have to get pulled up, because if you want a copy, here are your options. And it's also true of things like foreign white border duels and foreign black border duels and things like foreign black border Wheel of Fortune our Discord was looking at over on um, Card Market in the, in the EU the other day, because if you want a wheel, these are now your cheapest options. Yeah. I, I do think that... Um... Uh, whatchamacallit. The, the Italian stuff will get there because what else are you going to do? Like, you either... Hi, oops, who's calling me? You either, um... You buy an Italian Abyss for $300, $400, or you don't get one because English copies are 1300 Like, that'll, that'll start to move the Italian prices eventually. Yeah. So, Lake of the Dead... I sold out of Lake of the Deads this week at about 70 bucks that I was in on at 12 two years ago. Hmm. So, 
Ditto with Yavimaya Hollow, although it doesn't show up on this list. It could well, because I sold a ton, like six or seven Yavimaya Hollows around that price. I've still got a bunch of those left. Lake of the Deads I'm sold out of. Is Lake of the Dead 70 or 105? I'm inclined, given what I was selling them at, to think that it is pushing 100 now and has very little reason to go back the other way. Ashnod's Altar, original copies from Antiquities from 28 to 48, 70% gains, just an original printing of an early card, of a card. Um, Earthcraft from Tempest from 100 to 180, 80% gains. Cliff had this as a cast pick a ways back, and I can't remember what his entry point was, but it was way below even the starting point for this week on Earthcraft. So huge gains on Earthcraft if you're holding any of those. That, that's a, a fun little pickup there. It's only in 3,000 EDH decks, but a lot of that is availability and price. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to happen a lot with some of these cards. They're going to be like, oh, I can't believe this is only this much money. And that's exactly why, because... Uh, you mean this no many? Can, can't believe it's that few copies. Right, and it's because it's so expensive. Yeah. Talisman of Indulgence at Amiridin foils 23 to 43 87% gains or so. That's those single printing Manit Rock foils that we talked about in recent weeks. Universal Automaton is a foil common out of Modern Horizons that supposedly went 350 to 7 because it is a 1-1 changeling for 1. And Modern Horizon foils are easy to drain out. Sure. Why not? Uh, let Somebody let me know if you manage to sell any of those. I've got a Russian foil copy on my desk I would dearly love to move for $10 US. <laughs> uh yeah collector edition international collector edition there are fifteen thousand total copies i think that's another mistake i made on cast last week saying that there was fifteen thousand of the collector edition and ten thousand of the international there's actually ten thousand of the collector edition and five thousand of the international so fifteen thousand total so okay. less than we suspect there are a number of copies of, say, Kaladesh Masterpiece Inventions, less than most secret layers, etc., and a lot older. Uh, and those Moxen are, as I said earlier, have gone from, what, 500 to 1,000? 100% gains? Hard to say. you got to actually flip them at that price. But the reality is people can clip those cards and then play them in old school and whatever. And that's valid because they're real cards. And old school is not a sanctioned format. I mean... Why would you in even that, in, clip it? In that regard. Well, you, it depends. Because if depending on how you sleeve it, you could mess up the corners. So I have some CE cards in my top loader EDH decks because they're totally comfortable there. But I wouldn't play them in a normally sleeved deck if they were expensive. But you're worried about hurting the corners, playing it just in a sleeve, so you're going to cut the corners off instead. Well, that's a different thing. Then you're just trying to make your your deck uniform so that you can, so that the the square corners aren't, you don't get accused of cheating, right? Yeah. Because with in a sanctioned tournament, or, or you know, if you were in an old school unsanctioned tournament, but it was for money, where they have had cheating problems before, square mm. corners is not going to cut it. Well, no, no, I wouldn't think so. Because hmm. you'll be able to you'll be able to detect that. Right, right. And, and you might also be giving up information to your opponent if it's peeking out of the sleeve or whatever. Sure, I, I guess. But at the same time, like it feels like if you're playing in a old school tournament and you have clipped corners, that shouldn't be legal either. Anyway, super, super, is, super but... relevant to point out that the collector's edition sets because it a everything in them is the same rarity, which is why I called Soul Ring CE 
uh, last week or the week before. Um, other people in our Discord were going after things like Land of War Elves or Dark Ritual, super cheap. Because again, they're all, mm-hmm. there's just as many of those as there are, is of the Moxen because they're not they weren't in booster packs. It was just a collector's edition, meaning that there was one of every card. Right. And there's never going to be any more of them. It's the cheapest versions of a lot of the cards in question. Uh, the Power 9 cards, anyway, the dual lands. And there's just so few. So Yeah. He, they've gone from... I think somebody said they sold a sealed set for 18 grand last week or something. <laughs> and you could get... I remember getting in mid, like mid-late 90s, you could pick those up for two $300 easy. I would say it was a couple hundred dollars, I think. Yeah. yeah. And they were garbage. Like, nobody wanted them. Yeah. It was the Which kind of thing, like, a, the, the vendors were happy to unload onto some rube that would walk in. Yeah, which I found fascinating because, like, I remember even back when I was pretty new to this stuff in, like, Zendikar or so, in terms of new to, like, the money aspect of it, um, I thought they were kind of interesting and was a little curious about why they were so unpopular and so cheap. I was like, yeah, like, it's not real, but still looks like a mock still looks like a black lotus right like for most of the purposes that you would ever use this card it's the same thing like unless you're playing in sanctioned vintage tournaments (laughs) sure so even mind sensor uh masterpiece series invocations dried up out of nowhere not sure if that was targeted or not. Seems like it probably was. 45 to 95 ish who knows what the price is there's hardly any left posted anywhere yeah, that's an odd one. I don't know why. I mean, was it in that modern deck earlier? The mono white modern deck we were looking at? Not that I noticed. Uh, yeah. No, I think that card pretty much got replaced. Definitely has fallen out of favor. So I'm kind of wonder if there's something else. Some, someone's got something in mind there that we aren't aware of. It shows up in like the, the green, white Eladomri's toolbox decks, sometimes in the white decks in modern. It certainly sees lots of play in commander because pe- uh, pe- people that are searching can only search four cards. But in yeah, a hundred I mean, card, hundred card singleton deck, that means they do not find what they're looking for. Yeah. Uh, do you have, did you pull it up on ADA truck? Uh, let me see. Even mind sensor. Yeah, nineteen thousand five hundred and fifty decks. That's pretty good. Nine percent of all white decks. So I guess that's probably our that that's a solid thesis. Our point of entry there mm-hmm. is uh, is on the EDH. And oddly enough, I, I assumed I had copies of the, these lying around. Couldn't find any just thought you had copies of invocation thought i had them in like the dead spec box white portion floating around yeah (laughs) apparently not i think i have i had more loyal retainers than even mind sensors okay yeah that was one wasn't it Mm -hmm. like i forget all the cards that were in the invocations oh there's a lot (laughs) and a lot of great great art that you can barely see Unless you have a magnifying glass. Fast Bond at a third edition, 35 to 75, revised card targeting. Wheel of Fortune, 240 to 550 or so. Some copies are posted closer to 1,000. I'm being conservative <laughs> until we see proof that they're actually selling at that level. Didgeridoo is, uh, has gone off every time they've revealed Minotaurs, and it's always okay. been reserve list. It's Didgeridoo. Did- Come on, Didgeridoo. 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 do. Did you listen to that 
uh, Jamiroquai song? No. It's good. That album is good. Okay. I implore all of you, please. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to it the second you follow any of the audio guidance I've ever provided to our Discord. If you if you, if you tell me you listen to a single song I've posted for people's benefit, I'll go ahead and listen to that. This is relevant to the podcast. Okay. Uh, yeah, 25 to 60. You're, you're going to pay 60 for those? Uh no no the album's enough for me shadowborn apostle foils out of m14 everybody saw this coming 12 to 30 but really who knows like somebody's got them posted at 2700 dollars on tcg player because people are think they're all funny but even at if it's a 25 dollar foil you need tons of these for your deck so the number <laughs> you have to describe the demand curve versus price and how many people are left in the world that want foil shadowborn apostles if they're 30 apiece yeah this is this card is weird because you could tell me that you could say the price is that much but like i you need so many more than four <laughs> yeah. so why why would you buy that many or like how could how could you expect hmm Hard to imagine people paying 30 bucks a piece on these. Card Kingdom is when, offering when 15, 15 cash, 1950 credit. So if you were in it at whatever price we originally called them at, below 10, you probably are doing just fine. So dumb. And I would imagine, given this recent pump, that that number might have to rise because they're not going to be able to get their hands on any from anywhere. No, but it'll get reprinted, right? Oh, the reprint like, would crush. Like, if, if it showed up in whatever, yeah, re the reprint would crush. Because common fo foil commons are just li literally penny a dozen at this point. But there's a nice exit point right now if you can find a, find a buyer. Yeah. Well, you know, if they reprint this, I'm buying them all up at three bucks. <laughs> bizarre, bizarre. Well, I mean, keep in mind my Viscera foil, Viscera Seer foils from Mystery Boosters got reprinted yet again in Commander Legends. So they're just dead as a doornail, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, mm. Bizarre Baghdad out of Antiquities. As I mentioned earlier, who knows what the price of this card is now? Some from fifteen hundred to forty five hundred, up three thousand two hundred percent in a week, in a month. Sure. What are they actually Whatever. changing hands at? Do some research, find out. Uh, Shivan Dragon at a foil, uh, foil version at a seventh sixty to one hundred and eighty, which is basically just I dare you to buy this from me. And then City of Brass, you'll love this one. Eighth foils, not seventh, eighth, uh, seventy five to two twenty five. They just don't exist. Yeah, that doesn't, I mean, honestly, it doesn't surprise me just by virtue of, like, this card has been around forever. And so. then, in a week full of so much FOMO, you may as well cap things with Stormcrow, Secret Lair, going from 20 yeah. to $200 for 900% gains. I think it's actually obli obligatory that we all, anybody who is serious about energy finance should probably buy one at the elevated level just to add that story to their repertoire. That I paid the most for first foil secret layer Stormcrow should be like the new bragging rights. Who, who paid the most for it? Yeah, it, it's cool that you have a like 
BGS 10 Alpha Black Lotus, but how much did you pay for Stormcrow? Is really where it's at. How dumb are you? Yeah. Well, I can be even dumber. Yeah, but if, if the meme, if it sells, right? It's all about what somebody can actually get one of these to change hands for. Because if you got them for 10 and you managed to get even 50, I'm still impressed. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose that is true. Uh, capping the week uh, above Stormcrow, Demonic Hordes at a third edition, 3 to 35. Just people going after Revised. Revised, let's keep in mind, is a massively larger print run than Alpha, Beta, Antiquities, and I mean, Arabian Nights. It's at like 30 to 1 or some nonsense, right? I mean, it's wild and clearly you know revised duels have had elevated price points for many years since like 2010 or so um but seeing this other stuff that used to be 10 20 30 dollars pushing hundreds of dollars is absolutely crazy people that have like full sets of revised that they put put together along the way keep in mind i think the super collection the collection i bought in 2015 that i wrote about and then flew out to la to drop off the that included, oh, dozens and dozens of duels, and then one full set of, of sleeved revised. Would have been real nice to have held on to that <laughs> revised set at this point. Yes. Yes, it would have. <laughs> I, mean, I'm I mean, I probably did outpace that given my, R my annual ROI, like getting the money then and then reinvesting it probably did better. But for, I, for people that just have it sitting around, they're going to have a rude awakening, a happy awakening <laughs> when they go look I, up prices. I don't want I don't want to play the play this game too much, but I bought a collection. Oh, my. Quite a few years ago. Nine years ago, maybe. And in it was a the the TCG price on it was probably in the ballpark of 15 or 16 grand i paid i think five thousand for it it had amongst its many components a nearly complete set of legends i think nearly and i sold the legends section of it for oh my maybe 1800 2000 because I was trying to recoup the cost of it. So at the time, I was giving the guy, like, I don't know, a 30% break over the total value of the cards. But what I sold to him for, let's say, $2,000 is now probably worth 15 grand, 10 grand. Ugh. Blech. Well, that does it for. The top paper movers and our reserve list madness. Uh, a problem that doesn't really plague MTGO, though, um, which is identifiable by the fact that there are only three cards on our list for MTGO this week compared to the 20 we cut down from 100 in paper. I mean, Black Lotus was up quite a bit. I'm not sure why it didn't show up on this list, but uh, I, I did notice people talking about it in the Discord. Here we have some small ball stuff. The Akroan War uh, out of uh, Theros Beyond Death. Uh, going from like two cents to six cents because it's played as a, uh, in standard gruel adventures. Uh, there was a version of that deck that 
was eight and O in the CFB Pro Showdown this this month. Uh, Schachelgeist out of M21, 0.07 to 0.18, 157% gains. That's on the back of Blue White Spirits and both Pioneer and Standard, uh, Modern. Uh, and we've got Wishclaw Talisman from 0.24 to 0.74, card that she sees mostly EDH and Legacy play, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that one, yeah, I don't know where we would see that in competitive play. Uh, but that did catch my attention, seeing a pretty good jump there. And Wishclaw Talisman is a cool card. This was the one that basically is essentially a three mana demonic tutor. If you plan on ending the turn, that ending the game that turn, um, and if you're not ending the game that turn, at least in EDH, you give the tal, you know, the the demonic tutor to the next player who the the, the last place player who you're trying to help out a little bit. It's a four of in tendrils storm in legacy. In Which the makes sense, because that's the end the game this turn deck. Yeah. Uh, all right, so moving right along to paper cards to watch. We've got some spicy stuff here today. Uh, let's see. Kicking things off from my list for the week, I've got Perforos God of the Forge. Specifically, the Secret Layer foils. People may or may not recall, when Theros Beyond Death came out, there were five showcase... Uh, versions of the new gods and then they put out a secret layer that had all 10 of the original gods from the first theros block so that includes perforos god of the forge and of course perforos is one of the most popular of the first 10 gods um, in terms of edh uh, demand Seventeen thousand decks reported on edh rec seven percent of all red decks and supply on this good secret layer cards has been draining pretty hard and the specific dynamics of a set where it is a single point of sale let's say that that was january or february of 2020 20 or 30,000 sets were distributed worldwide but they will never be distributed in that form again fast forward a year aren't that many of them left if you take a look at the the situation for Perforos on TCG Player right now, you're talking about just 12 listings. You've got one vendor, Kitchen Table Games, at 16 copies at 30 bucks a piece, and everybody else has onesie twosie. And give that three to six months, and those are going to dry up, and that's going to be a $60 card version of this card. Well, I love me some Perforos. Um... I have played against this enough in my local EDH games to know how obnoxious this is. I think he has honestly won more games of EDH than any other single card I've played against. Um, so I like his stain power. Um, the you're you're real hot on the secret layer here, and is it your is your is your positioning here primarily just that you're not getting these secret layer printings again? Yeah, you're not going to get the secret layer printing again. It's a good-looking card. The, the secret layer foils, of course, are known to curl. However, we've more or less solved that problem in our Discord. Like We've got an article coming out that I mentioned last week that I will finally get around to edit sometime this week and will probably be released by the time this podcast uh, is live on Friday that's going to detail how people can go about rehydrating their magic cards. That, that will be a very fascinating article, but you really put yourself on the spot putting it in recording that you were going to have that available <laughs> this week. I get, I get a lot done in a given week, but that means that some things fall off the table. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, I like the card. I mean, 15 vendors is real low. You got that little bit of a wall, but that doesn't really bother me too much because you're, you, you know, you're buying in knowing that you're sort of at the peak supply. But even the peak supply is not that deep. And uh, I don't know anyone who's ever had their opponent cast this again, cast this against them in EDH that did not have an exile effect readily handy knows how fast this card can kill you. So I've always felt like it was a little underplayed um, comparatively. I think the numbers were not as high as I would have expected because every time I would die to this stupid card, I would go look it up to see how popular it was. I was like, how do you, more people not play this? Um, very good card though. So yeah, 17,000 decks, so that's still a lot. Let me tell you, this should probably be in 100%. 80% of red decks. Um, yeah, I like it. It's definitely the best printing of the card and probably will be for quite some time. I mean, original foils will probably outpace, but this will get there just on the back of c collectors trying to complete secret layer sets and or EDH players and the combination plus the dynamic that vendors could only get around to wanting to buy more after it was too late to do so. That's what's going to make secret layers that are underprinted up front or that are not ultra super popular always get there. And I think the Theros gods were actually relatively popular. I seem to remember somebody counting the number of orders vis-a-vis -vis an API for the e-commerce software Wizards was using at the time. And I think we pinned down that this was a fairly large print run in comparison to some others. So like if... If Cats was, whatever, sub 10,000 copies, this might have been triple that, like twenty five or 30,000. But that's still not that much in the global grand scheme of things, especially since so many of those, any of them that basically didn't go into vendors' hands for the purposes of reselling, just got absorbed into collections. And that's the black hole that is almost impossible to pull cards back out of that drives most of the prices for Magic and collectibles globally. Right, right. Yeah, the fact that this was released through Secret Layer and Secret Layers very heavily go to people who don't plan on splitting them up and selling them um, really changes the dynamic of the availability. Uh, and I think for what it's worth, I probably like the Secret Layer drop more. Anything big, splashy, colorful, I think is cooler. I mean, the original, I mean, the original foil is Theros too. Like, it's not like it's a cool set. Right, like Theros was just a set. The card wasn't spectacular. the The constellation borders were nifty, but they weren't that good. Um, okay, whatever. Uh, it's a good pick. I like the card. I like the card quite a bit, and I like this treatment, and I like that price point. Um, I'm also on a theme this week, as we each tend to do. Uh, I decided to go poke around TCG players' best selling sorted rank. Um, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't understand how it works. And I feel like I understand it less now than I did before I started looking around today because the cards that they have listed as best selling, the numbers don't really, f it's hard to say whether they support it or not, because obviously I don't have the information that they do. Um, but you know, if I'm looking at some of their best selling extended art cards and then I go look them up on EDA track and it's in 600 decks and I'm looking at extended art copies, I'm like, okay, so who's buying, how is this the eighth most popular extended art card of all the extended art cards on the, magic the, or at, 
on TCG Player. Some of, but it's in 600 EDH rec decks. Some of that can be the hidden casual scene, right? I mean, Wizards has long been trying to drive home... What? I don't know if they make it a priority, but when they have been... have bothered to discuss the market or why they make certain decisions about certain products or the reprints of certain cards, they have reinforced many times that they're the majority of magic players are not fully engaged on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, etc. The majority of magic players do not aren't whales that spend tons of money. Their majority of magic players are casuals that play at their kitchen table. And well, and we have it's important to flag here and there that we have zero visibility on that. The the closest that we come to having visibility on that is when we interact with vendors that can that tell us people walk into their store and buy such and such a card a lot, and they can't keep it in stock. Yeah, I, 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 you're you're right. Like our visibility comes from from what other vendors essentially tell us. People who own glass count cabinets in local stores, um, and pretty much everything I, we know about that is is either from those types of people with that insight, or from going, "Wow, look at these cards that are selling an unreal amount of copies." Like the TCG player is empty. But nobody's playing this anywhere else. It's not in competitive. It's not in EDH. Who the hell is buying this card? There's really only one player group left. So like we kind of have that process of elimination available to us as well. What's kind of confusing here is that like you look at some of these and it's the cards in 600 EDH decks, but also it's the extended art copy. Like this is as far as I can tell, supposed to be sorted with the extended art and the non-extended arts listed separately. Because that's how TCG lists them too, by the way. You'll notice that like the extended art cards are actually a different version of the card. Or like it's it's listed as a different card in TCG player, such that if you go to, for instance, Soul Ring, and then you click on other versions of Soul Ring, you will not get the extended art. And if you go to the Soul Ring extended art page, there is no button for view other listings of this card because it does not think there are other listings of Soul Ring because it treats those as two separate cards. It's kind of weird how they have it set up. Yeah, it's totally but wrong. What it, yeah, it's wrong. But what it means is they're considered separately, which means that when I sort by best-selling extended art cards, it should show me the actual popularity of actual extended art cards. So are casuals buying these? Like that's just, that's the part of this that just is kind of bewildering because this kind of conventional wisdom is that casuals basically don't care about any sort of premium version of a card. Um, I, I, I would, I would say that arts are changing that equation. Well, I would say that it's more about price point. Casuals will buy cards under $5. So they have no problem buying the fit. If, if a casual has to choose between a card that's 50 cents or $5 and the $5 is clearly cooler. Those are both very low-end impulse purchases, cheaper than a latte at Starbucks. So I can believe that casuals will buy a $5 foil extended art if they think it looks good. Well, we know... Um, I mean, I could... Pl- so that's basically the the uh, same conclusion I came to. Um, we know that f- f- casuals tend to strongly dislike foils um, pretty well. Uh, but the extended arts are sort of a different ballpark, non-foil extended arts. So I it would, and I, I that's really the only conclusion you can draw is that it seems like there is definitely a more of an appeal. But for but what but what card are we talking cards amongst casual? Well, I don't have one off the top of my head, right? Like I'd have to go back research. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about the card you have listed here that you said it was only mm-hmm. six hundred decks. 
Oh no, this card this card's in fifty thousand EDH yeah, deck. That, that was my point. So where's the confusion um, coming in? Okay, but alright, so let me scroll down here. So Alright. The Ox of Agonas is according to this the tenth most popular extended art card on TCG player. Yeah, but that's a dredge card. That's got nothing to do with EDH. Shh. Well, okay, but like there's that many people buying this card. Dredge players need it as of last year. So lots, there's probably yeah, lots but, of dredge players but, that during COVID are, have taken their sweet time to to update their decks. I I, I mean, dredge seems like the 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 takeaway. But like of every extended art card that's been printed, it's the tenth most popular. I mean, key, like that seems odd. Well, popular Polycros, in, in whatever Polycros, time frame they are considering that, right? Well, which we'll come to in just a second. Pelucranos Unchained is at like seventeen. Uh, then you've got on the next page, uh, Flamekin Herald, the three mana three, two, uh, that's commander spells. You have haste. He's okay. Outlaws merriment is in there, which is vengeance, which is a, essentially a wrath for specific creature types. Um, Thrix, the sudden storm. The blue flash flying creature from Theros Beyond Death spells you cast with converted mana cost five or greater that's, cost one less. That's because it's a giant. That's a Keldheim uh, Giants thing. Sure, okay, which is fair too. I mean, but you can, you know, if you scroll through this, there are cards you're going to look at here and kind of like they raised your eyebrow a little bit. Um, now, there's definitely a temporal component to this because a huge percentage of this is pre sale cards. For Kaldheim, so obviously, sorry, for uh, Kaladesh. So <laughs> obviously, they're only considering this within probably like the last week or two would be my guess. I, I, um, let's put it this way. I don't fully understand how they're organizing that either. But it's worth running by Cassie, the rights for TCG, and get her to explain uh, her understanding of it. If, if, she, yeah, if, it, if she is so inclined and allowed to do so. Right, I yeah, I would would guess it's a mixture of both would be the issue. But um my my point here is just that this is not a this this method of review is not a black box, but it is also not uh, a clear window either. It is somewhere in between. However, we can still glean some information from this. I know that certain extended art cards are fairly popular. Um they, you know, enough so that they pop up here on this list. And, it, and it, at least it gives me an, an opportunity to review some of the stuff floating around out there that is reasonably popular that may have fallen off the radar a little bit. Uh, because you and I, like everyone else, are uh, uh, essentially programmed to keep an eye on the latest and greatest and be distracted by spoiler season and forget what happened six months ago much less, you know, a year, a year and a half ago. I mean, I can barely remember what happened six hours ago. So two months ago is a lifetime. Um, so that leads me to essentially just having used this as a jumping off point to explore a variety of cards, uh, extended arts. And one of the ones, the, the first one that jumped out at me most significantly is Burnished Heart. Uh, Burnished Heart is the three mana, uh, what is this? It's an elk, I think. Yeah, three mana elk. Artifact creature, 2-2, two, two, pay three, sack it, search for two basic lands, and put them onto the battlefield tapped. Pretty basic card, but like I said, it's in 46,000 EDH rec decks. 
Um, it's the only really good version of this car. There hasn't, you know, there's a couple pack foils, but they're not interesting. Um, there's a, they're down to 34 vendors. This is, uh, I'm sorry, the Commander Legends Extended Art Foils. Um, there's only 34 vendors for this card. We know Commander Legends is probably around its gl- su- peak supply roughly right about now. There might be some more that we've talked about on this cast a couple times, but the short version of that is where, you know, if there is more Commander Legends, we're anticipating somewhere between 5 and 20% bump in supply. Um, not much more than that. So... With the popularity of this card um, that's already been established, you know, oh, and the price point on the foils is $2, like maybe $2.50 if you buy an individual copy from one guy and you have to pay the shipping on top of it. But that is dirt cheap for this card. And honestly, I think these are going to be 15 bucks. Like it, that's still very much a, like maybe not impulse purchase, but you're going to look at burnished. Anyone who was thinking about buying a cool version of burnished chart is going to go, I can play this in every deck. Like I don't mind paying 15 bucks for this, even though it's kind of pricey ish, because when I'm done with it in this deck, I can move it over to this other deck. These people all, everyone who's playing this card already has multiple copies of this in various decks. So paying a little more for a cool one is fine. So I really like this card. Um, and you're, you're getting in at peak supply, so it might feel a little daunting, but I, I love it. And, uh, yeah, I think this is a good pickup at two to $3. Honestly, you could buy these at five and they'd still be excellent. So part of why it's a slam dunk is that the commons and uncommons are the same rarity in the extent foil extended arts for commander legends. Commons are not more Mm. common than the uncommons. Um, I always forget about that. And this is an uncommon, so that doesn't, (laughs) that doesn't matter actually. I thought this was a common, assuming because Burnish Heart, I was pretty sure it was a common in the when it showed up in Commander decks. Because um, it's it might have been a common in something. I'm just double checking. No, it's been an uncommon. It's been marked as an uncommon at least every time. Every time it showed up in Commander, it was originally from Theros. It showed up in Commander 2015, 2014, and 2019. And I would imagine that some of the EDH rec reporting is polluted data from people registering uh, pre-constructed decks. However, Mm. it is a very flexible colorless card that provides ramp in colors that don't have easy access to it. And I think I want to say that a Discord pro trader wanted to submit this either last week or the week before, and it got beat out by whatever we picked instead. But their choice was correct. Your choice is correct. There aren't enough of these left pending additional supply of commander legend cbs for this to do anything but go up and i i would guess that even buy list is already pretty reasonable on these let me just check in with our friends over at card kingdom that guy is definitely so annoyed that he picked this card last week and you didn't choose it and then the next week i come on and i'm like yeah you should pick you should buy this card (laughs) sorry man i didn't even see that yeah important to for people to understand that Travis does not see that those interactions because <laughs> that is only be I basically pick from the submissions from everybody else and Travis only hears about it on the show. My my condolences, buddy. So currently, the foil extended art from from Commander Legends is not even on Card Kingdom's buy list. So that's not a that's not a huge buy signal, but mm, does, I don't think it's going to matter. All the good. Uh, Foil extended arts are just going to sell out from Commander Legends. Yeah, I, I mean, I gotta say, it, just, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like this card is is so good. Everyone, you know, when I was playing regularly, 
like all of my friends ran copies of this. It was just very useful, especially since it's a creature, it's an artifact creature. It's so easy to recur and give you good ramp. This card's good. It's it, it, just good and useful, and it's exactly the price point where people will buy a copy, maybe even two copies. They put it in all their decks. This is one of my favorite picks that I've had in a while. We only need like a hundred people <laughs> to buy copies before these don't exist anymore on TCG Player. Or we need one guy. Ah, to buy a hundred of there them. Are, there are plenty of those people running around right now, too. <laughs> All right, so moving on to my next pick for uh, this week. Ink Eyes, Servant of Oni. Secret layer drop series. Good card. Shows up in 4,400 EH rec decks or so. Probably should be in more. 2% of all black decks. There's a couple of reasons to go after this. A, it's a secret layer card from last year. There are... Only 13 results on TCG Player. Pretty flat curve around 20 bucks. No easy way to resupply these overseas because secret layers are even more expensive anywhere but in North America. And the other big kicker is that rumor has it we're going back to Kamigawa in 2020 for, uh, 2022 for like cyberpunk Kamigawa of the future. In which case, there will definitely be more rat ninjas running around. Or at least ninjas. I- I, I do you believe that? Do you believe yep. the Yeah yeah. That's not like some random rumor. Like Wizards sent out a it was part of a survey, like a customer uh uh a market research survey that Wizards was running that included questions about how do you feel about these these concepts. Yeah. I, I very I highly doubt that that was like seven year planning stuff. I would guess it was like we're in the midst of settling art direction for this. We're not 100% sure on this element of it, and we want to see how people feel about it. That's just such an odd an odd pick. But there's reasons that it fits, because Kamigawa was a in-the-past set. It was not on the present timeline of Magic. That is true. It had, um, what's his name? Umuzawa as, like, a young dude, essentially. Yeah, who... And it's also, at the end of that process, he has an encounter with Bolas that happens way, way, way back. Yeah. In fact, and then his, and he... then his descendants show up on Dominaria, right? Yeah, he beats up. Yeah, because it's a Toshiro Umezawa, and it's his Jite that shows up in um, whatever set that is. Oh, no, that's still that set. Yeah, but in any case, yes, I. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but there is he, there, he there's up, a story. There's up. a story of his lineage ending up on Do- Dominaria, and that's thousands of years before the action on Dominaria. So right, well, we saw that when we went in the Dominaria set because there was the other um, Umezawa that shows up in that set. So, but bottom line, Kamigawa has a big enough time gap. If Tatsuko, if we're assuming that. They're going to in, like have current, present day timeline planeswalkers go visit there. That it, there's been this, you know, what has happened. I can exactly see how this all happened in house because they're sitting around like, okay, well, it's been, you know, according to our timeline, like our lore timeline, it's been thousands of years since we last looked in on Kamigawa. So what's happened there? What kind of evolution has taken place? Do you think society would have changed? What would that look like? And then they're tapping into this, you know, the cyberpunk samurai elements that are prevalent in in video games and i can easily see how that all came together anyway whether or not that that is true 
I definitely believe they will go back to Kamigawa because I don't think they. No, that's... I don't think they can help themselves with the samurais and the ninjas and the oni. No, that's the part I want to argue about. The the pick is irrelevant. I want to argue about whether they're going back and whether it's dumb or not. <laughs> well, there's there's that's there's a, the whole. That's a joke. That's a joke. Well, there's the whole series of arguments about, about Kaladesh appropriate, and I do mean Kaladesh, not Kaltime, uh, appropriating <laughs> uh, Indian or South 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 Asian culture and not really fully representing it in a way that would be meaningful to people of that descent. Um, and some of similar arguments can be made about the way they represented Japanese folklore uh, on Kamigawa. Now, personally, I really like the art, art direction on Kamigawa. I, some of my favorite art direction, I think, in all of magic history, um, because it was there was quite... The, the the style guide for that set is much more daring than almost anything else they've done. Um, but bottom line is this. Ink Eyes is already a good card, and ninjas are already a thing. So a return to Kamigawa can only help, and I don't think you need it anyway, given that there are 13 listings left on TCG Player. <laughs> so well, keep- 20 to 40 is the call here, and I feel very confident we're going to get there. Keep, keeping my perspective or, or my scope of discussions focused solely on your pick here, um, I think that it is a, a solid angle. Again, the secret layer stuff is probably all good good picks. Um, the EDH rec numbers are pretty solid. Ink Eyes has been popular in casual circles, I know, actually, for a long time. Um, Ink Eyes was always one of those sleeper cards that people didn't know was as expensive as it was. I remember those showing up in binders regularly. Um and, and that was uh, always fun to, to trade for. Uh, and I agree that if there is a return to Kamigawa, there may there might might not may or may not be rats, but um, that would probably, you know. But there definitely be Kamigawa, Yeah, isn't going to make Ink Eyes any worse, right? Um, so if that does hit, that's a, a big boost for you. So I think that's a good pick. Um, you you might, the, the, the worst case scenario here is that you don't get paid off until the Kamigawa set rolls around. But, oh, but overall, I think it's a good choice. Okay. What's your next one? Um, I Just the idea of putting, like, the, when they talk about, like, cyberpunk or futuristic, like, is there, if there's electricity, like, electronics, computer hardware, no, the closest we've seen in that is Kaladesh. Yeah. That doesn't do it either. They'll, they'll, but they'll do something like that. Like, it'll be magic-driven technology, same as on Kaladesh, but with a different flavor. Yeah, I don't know. I still, I still think that you're getting too gritty, too, too sci-fi. I think magic needs to stay the hell away from science fiction. Basically, here's here's what that um, art art direction is going to look like. There's going to be somebody drawing and in, like interacting with a magic laced interface. So it'll look like like a, a gooey floating in in the sky, and they'll be like manipulating <laughs> things in it to like cast a spell. Uh... Hey guys, remember when you played Cyberpunk 18 months ago? It's just like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, it's going to be awful. Oh. It's it's really funny cuz you know somebody oh. like got a promotion at the meeting where they were like, "Listen, Cyberpunk is coming out in 18 months. It's going to be the biggest game in the history of games. Everyone's going to love it. This is... Let's let's get on this Zeitgeist bandwagon and release 18 months after that." I am physically in pain thinking about this <laughs> they're gonna have they're gonna have some freaking 
DLC, some free DLC for Cyberpunk that's going to like add a quest for a magic character in the Cyberpunk. I, I'm pretty sure. Right? I'm pretty sure like, we even have a name registered for this. I think it was something like Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Yeah, that sounds about right. Ah, oh. ah, uh, yeah, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. <laughs> I have been somewhere between like. The worst that I have felt about most of the planes in Magic has been ambivalent. But this is awful. Will, will, Kama, Just... will Kamigawa Neon Dynasty have a rave planeswalker? Her, her, powers are like, her powers are like Dazzler or whatever from the X-Men. Let, or Jubilee. Let's... Like Jubilee's powers in the X-Men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jubilee plus Dazzler on Kamigawa. That's the new planeswalker. Mm. Physical discomfort thinking about this. <laughs> All right. So your next pick, good sir. All right. So here's a card that I forgot existed. Uh, Midnight Clock, which definitely sounds like a card that could show up in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Uh, this is from Throne of Aldrain. This is a three-mana artifact that taps for blue, um, and you can put a put an hour counter on it. And then every upkeep, you also put an hour counter on it. So if you're playing a four-player game, it gains four counters every rotation. Um, and when the 12th hour counter is put onto it, you shuffle your hand in graveyard into your library, then draw seven cards. So if you play this and do nothing with it, after three rotations, you... Uh, was that was it Wheel of Fortune, I think, right? Just shuffle everything up and then draw seven new cards. But it's you, not everybody, just you. Um, and then you exile it. And in the meantime, it's a mono rock. So it's a nice, it's a solid mono rock that hangs around for a couple turns. And if nobody does anything about it, you get to draw a new hand in three turns. Uh, the ex- This is in 5,000 EDH direct decks. So not a tremendous amount, but uh, not terrible. Um, pretty decent Mo- moving up. And what I like about this is that the price point looks good on tcg player um and by that i mean that the uh, market price is just over nine dollars but the cheapest copy is 12 bucks so to me that says the price is moving upwards and the price graphs indicate that as well we're down to 19 vendors uh one guy has a sell wall of just about 20 copies but he's charging 30 bucks so he's not a problem um so you only you know if you buy these at 12 dollars, i think it was three play sets and they're at 20 bucks uh so a card with some modest man but i like we're probably at a very good time period to be looking at extended art foils on throne of all drain i would bet the train is leaving the station on those sets that sets ea foils within the next six months um, and I think you could probably pick up a couple midnight clocks for 12 bucks and cash out at 25, 30 bucks uh, sometime this year. Yeah, that seems totally reasonable. I think other people, I've talked about this early on in the, the exploration of foil extended arts that even this small ball stuff would eventually get there. And other people have brought this card up to me recently uh, talking, you know, saying that the ramp is building and the supply is draining and it's actually seeing more play than people expected. Oh. Okay. Some, some appeal there. Some other people have validated my considerations. All right. So to complete the sweep on secret layer stuff, bitter blossom secret layers have real sweet art. 
And you might say, but Bitter Blossom's not played in Modern anymore. Who cares? It's in 9,500 EDH decks, which is 4% of all black ones. It's If you look at the uh, Judge Foil version of Bitter Blossom, that's also an option. You can pick those up in the EU at something like $50, and they're already CK credit covered at 65 so virtually no risk there, and I would say you get in at 50, get out at 80 or 90 on those, and you'll be doing just fine. There's still plenty of them left, and there are multiple premium versions of Bitter Blossom sitting around, but they're all draining over time because there's steady EDH demand on what is a good card that has not really seen a strong reprint in black of a similar nature almost since this was printed. Very, very rarely yeah, we... does black get sweet token generators. We had some, I feel like we had something that was supposed to be a bitter blossom analog, a fixed bitter blossom essentially, but I don't remember what it was. But you're absolutely right; nothing has has matched bitter blossom's potency. Uh, I mean, it's a good card, carried an archetype for a while, uh, and rightfully so. And these numbers don't leave a lot of guesswork. I mean, you've got an arbitrage opportunity coming out of Europe. And your um, secret layer copies are basically already credit backed on buy list, so there's virtually no risk there. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer if you're if you're around, you're doing something. Doesn't seem like you're going to be sad if you grab a couple of these. To clarify, two separate opportunities: the judge foils are backed at CK at sixty-five. You buy those in Europe at fifty. You aim for eighty or ninety exit. The secret layers are non-foil only. And are gorgeous art. So you don't have the foil curling problem. The art's great. They're full uh, full art. And you can get those in North America, not Europe, for about 45 Also looking for a $75, $80, exit. They're already covered at, by CK at $43 credit. So again, virtually no risk. And you're cur- you're cur- on the secret layer copies, you're currently looking at 20 listings on TCG Player, quickly ramping from 40 to 50 plus. <clears throat> I would guess by the time most people hear this, like they'll be over 50 because people will start nibbling at them based on this. When Do you happen to know when those landed? Like when the secret layer with Bitter Blossom was actually making it to people's homes? I want to say first half of 2020. Just let me double check. It was Bitter Blossom Dreams. I think that's part of the very first secret layer, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, release date was December 3rd, 2019. That's what, that's from the, okay. the first mega release. Where they had like five yeah. or six different sets on offer. Yeah, they did the like six to kick it off. That's really good then, because sometimes these secret layers, some of them I look at, at least I have personally looked at them and been like, oh, this is interesting. I feel like I this card was several months ago, and then I realized the announcement was several months ago, but it was actually only just released six, you know, three weeks ago. So, um, you know, it wasn't the best time to buy in. But this is good because you're well past the shipping date on all of this, so the cards are in people's hands, and that's it. Um, but that cut with that buy list backing, like, yeah, I agree. I think eighty eighty to one hundred dollars is probably what this ends up at. Maybe. You know, the high end of that, maybe not this year, but still looks pretty good. And here's the thing. It also under underpins that several of the secret layers have been very good investments. That was a $30 set. And in that $30 set, you got a Bitter Blossom and four Fairy Rogue tokens. 
So if you can unload, if you end up unloading your bitter blossom to somebody who's buying one now and you're getting 45, you're already up. It's not a huge amount no. up, up over fees, but you're probably the tokens go for three bucks a piece each. And speaking uh, for, uh, and speaking of those tokens, they're probably solid targets as well. <laughs> because if anybody wants those tokens, there was only one place to get them. And they're they're most yeah. of them are down to fourteen or fifteen listings on TCG player and they're already gone for three or four dollars a piece. Once those are gone, those are gonna be ten, fifteen, twenty dollar tokens because they'll never reprint them. Does tokens like that concern me? Like, because I feel like they're kind of like basic lands a little bit, where it's like, sure, there might have only been one place to get these, but there are so many versions of them that uh, you never know whether something's going to catch or not, if it's going to take off or not, essentially. And it's not to say that it won't, it's to say that it's just a little riskier than I like to gamble with, because it's like, maybe this will be the Bitter Blossom token people like, and it'll be a $9 token. Maybe it won't be, I don't know. I, I don't want to roll that dice, but I, I respect other people might want. They're CK credit backed at a dollar seventy to three dollars. Currently, yeah. the the, the mean, thing so is the art the art matches right. So if you get the secret layer version of the of the bitter blossom, you probably want these tokens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you care if you care that much, I mean, I don't. People do. Sure, exactly. Both both good choices here. Both very solid. Um. I'm going to wrap things up with a card that I remembered even less than Midnight Clock. At least Midnight Clock I remembered having talked about. Bonders Enclave is a land. Uh, it's colorless land. Taps for wastes. And it has an activated ability of three tap draw card. Only activate it if you have Ferocious. But that's not too hard to do in EDH Rex. So this is basically just a colorless land that has a draw card ability tacked onto it. Um, you can grab these uh, Ikoria, yeah, Ikoria f extended art foils for five bucks, five dollars for these guys. It's at uh, five and a half thousand EDA track decks. Also, kind of higher up on TCG players, popular extended art cards. Um, it's colorless land, which means it fits in literally every deck that exists. Uh, I mean, five percent, or I'm sorry, five five point five. 1,000 EDH Artrex isn't a ton, um, but it is obviously seeing play and will continue to see play and people are going to keep adding it and they'll return to the essentially ferocious mechanic a couple times and the land will get picked up here and there and people are going to buy them and not sell them and there it will sit. So I think you're looking at this moving up from 5 to probably 15 over time. Um, Inventory-wise, you're looking at 23 vendors over on TCG Player. Again, doesn't look like anyone's got more than a play set. Uh, and you'll buy you'll buy them at five bucks. Um, you'll you'll you know probably like three four play sets, and you're up into the ten dollar range. But you know there's there's like thirty five total copies on TCG Player right now, so it wouldn't take much for this to just be gone. I don't think this is gonna sell out tomorrow, but I do think that the price will move on this up into the ten plus range uh, by fall probably. Yeah, I, these are ones I put aside as I was going through Ikoria uh, collector booster boxes because it just seemed obvious to me that it was broad enough in its application uh, that it was going to see some modicum of play. And yeah. indeed, it, it has a, you know sees a medium amount of play. It's not one of the hottest cards of the year, but 
makes colorless mana, your backup, and it draws a card for three if you got a creature with power four or greater. So it's a ferocious land with card drawing. And as you said, 18 listings left on TCG player, pretty steep ramp. It's going to get there. Yeah. I, I, my, it was my thought. It's it's not exciting. It's not sexy. But clearly people play with a card. People will continue to play with a card. And you'll get to see those prices move over time. So... All right. Uh, oh, we have our listener pick this yeah, week. Yeah, so our Pro Trader Discord selection is from Phyrexian Donuts. And this one kept, caught me a little off guard because I would have assumed the inventory was too deep. And it was six months ago. But Thassa's Deep Dwelling is already in 6% of all blue decks since it was released. 8,400 total on EDH rack. Zero chance of a reprint of this version for forever. Who knows? Probably never. Uh, card will eventually get reprinted, but that could be years from now. 15 is your in point here. You can get 15 or $16 copies in a variety of places for the foil showcase version of Thassa Deep Dwelling. A very flexible uh, blink and tap uh, effect god who is indestructible, so tends to hang out on your board and get the job done almost no matter what your uh, opponents are playing. For this to go 15 to 35 is the call in, say, 12-plus months, and I have every confidence that it will eventually get there. Uh, this and Heliod, certainly the two gods to be watching from Theros Beyond Death. Yeah, the, this Thassa was pretty solid um, and has been relatively popular, uh, especially compared to some of the other gods uh, from Theros Beyond Death, I believe. Uh, that price point is pretty tempting for an extended art foil, like, essentially premium mythic-ish card. Uh, 8400 is a very good number. It's a very good price point, so uh, I'm on board. It seems pretty solid to me. All right. So um, Just make sure you send me the number two card that we didn't pick so that I can put it on my list for next week. <laughs> on it. Uh, okay. It was a good one, actually, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> so moving on from cards to watch, pretty solid segment there. Topic of the week, there was a big Channel Fireball merger announced this week. CFB put out a press release announcing that they were merging with Binder POS, a point-of-sale slash e-commerce software company with a focus on uh, local gaming stores. The press release said online retailer and community site channelfireball.com parent superstars of Sports Inc. and game store point of sale software company Binder POS are merging, the companies announced, and plan to launch an online collectibles marketplace in Q2 2021. The new company will be called CFB Group and headquartered in Henderson, Nevada at the superstars of Sports HQ. Top management will be Binder POS CEO Josh Grant, who will be CFB Group CEO, and Superstars of Sports CEO John Sasso, who will be uh, a very active chairman. So Sasso always owned Superstars of Sports, I'm assuming is what this means, which is a sports collectible focus thing, which is why we don't really see him much in the Magic community, because I would imagine that moving into TCGs was the secondary play after being in the sports collectibles market. Um, and hopefully we'll get somebody on the cast from Channel Fireball to confirm that history at some point. Well, do, do you know anything about the parent company, the, the Masters of Sports or whatever? Superstars of Sports? No. Superstars of Sports. Because I, I was wondering if it was one of those things where, like, 
Yeah, it's it's the parent company, but insofar as like Alphabet is the parent company of Google and really it's just Google and that's just a name they attached to it, kind of. Yeah, I'm unclear on whether this is the uh, uh, overarching shell that where they control other uh, companies or not. According to Dun & Bradstreet, it's listed as having five total employees. And sales around 400,000 US. <laughs> so one might imagine that that is some kind of sports collectibles shell that when John moved over to running, like launching and running Channel Fireball, CFB may have outpaced. Um, but again, this, this is guesswork oh, yeah. and we should dodge that for now and shift that forward in time to some future interview with the, the people that actually know the facts. The bottom line here is there's two exciting things here. Channel Fireball, a major magic retailer from the perspective of the average magic player, is merging with a software company. Why are they doing that? Well, part of why they're doing that is because there's money to be made. They There is uh, a company called Crystal Commerce that has targeted the LGS market for years, um, providing extremely bad uh, <laughs> websites and database work, in my humble opinion. Um, so, so, so probably not having any uh, representatives from Crystal Commerce on the cast anytime soon. Probably not, no. Um, every, every interaction I've ever had with, with them trying to get them to do work on behalf of clients of theirs that were trying to connect with our data has been an absolute nightmare. So it uh, wouldn't be at the top of my priority <laughs> list. The So there is a market gap, and we've seen other people try to address that marketplace. I mean, there are broader, larger... Um, software plays that can be used in that space, things like Shopify and what have you. But the problem is that they often don't have highly detailed inventory data and database structures that are copacetic with what your average local gaming store needs. Keep in mind, these people need to manage inventory from a bunch of different hobbies simultaneously, and all of those hobbies are tracked in different ways. Just think about the, the data management nightmare of all the different formulations and versions of cards and products that Wizards puts out just for Magic the Gathering. Now imagine you're running an operation like our sponsor Cool Stuff that has multiple stores and services six or seven or eight major hobbies at the same time. Total data management nightmare. And there are tips. And I remember how annoyed people got when Wizards put out, what was it, the multiple cryptic commands that you could, had no distinguishing feature to work with or the uh what was it that they put out recently? well mystery booster mr Bo- mystery booster cards have the little planeswalker symbol oh. oh no it was the cards that showed up in the set and then also the set boosters or like the, the the promo packs for that set that were otherwise identical except for the collector's number well, i mean that are technically two different versions of the card but like you have to look at the collector's number to see the difference yeah and star city games put in an article today where they were talking about uh flagging one of the elves saying that it was only in the theme boosters but it is in fact in the theme and set boosters so even the people at the top of the industry re- remain confused because the details are are shifting all the time mm-hmm. so the thing is that there first of all there are no really fantastic websites in magic that's just a fact the the closest thing we had was the one that Pierre richardson was running where he was trying to compete building a new marketplace that he gave up on um because it was 
a hot young team building a fresh platform. It was the best looking thing we've ever seen, but it lasted relatively briefly and then disappeared. Puka Trade people thought was pretty hot when it launched, and there are some elements of it that were nice, but largely it's a overwrought uh, design from my perspective. And most of the major vendor sites are bad to medium. And I'm even talking about the relaunches because a lot of these these major companies have relaunched sites <laughs> this year, and they're still not very impressive. I, I I yeah I will have to say that across the spectrum of magic websites that I have used, I think the best one is probably Scryfall. Like in terms of in terms of a website that serves content about magic cards and cares about keeping track of them. Um, they have handled it pretty well. I don't care for the Channel Fireball relaunch, but their original version wasn't excellent either. Star City has always felt kind of clunky. No, no one has been excellent, and some of them have been. Yeah, face to face has the same problem. They like <laughs> went spent a bunch of money building a custom thing this year, and it's it's not quite where they need it to be. And I mean, this is a yeah. constant problem because it, it, it actually is relatively complex e-commerce. Like from my perspective as someone who's been designing, building websites with teams for 20 years, I understand why these projects are going awry. Because if you don't have a project manager on the inside that really knows that industry well, you tend to get abused by the agencies you're working for, especially if you try to get things done cheaply instead of instead of paying what those things are worth. You're going to end up with scope creep, unforeseen complexity, all sorts of data uh, transference issues. You know, they would have had old systems that they needed to merge into new systems. There's, there's a lot of headaches and nightmares there that that makes me wince just thinking about it. And Binder POS is actually the platform that Channel Fireball's new site is built up on. So if you're not impressed with it, this is who they're merging with. And, and in fact, looking over, mm-hmm. you know, Binder POS's website, I, I would guess that it's possible Sasso's sweeping in here because he senses a weakness in the in the market. Like Binder POS might have been in trouble because pretty hard to be selling software to LGSs during a year where many of them can't even open their doors properly. And but there's a bunch of things he's gaining through this system that they clearly have uh faith in since they're using it for their own business they by launching a marketplace that apparently is going to be vendor focused so the average joe blow is not going to be able to set up their inventory inside the system it's going to be strictly for vendors now what it takes to qualify as a vendor might just be a business number or something so if people really wanted to they could probably get in on the action the benefit for them is that if their inventory is placed alongside all the other vendors in this platform, it's going to generate additional sales for them in the same way that being posted on eBay and TCG Player and Amazon uh, does as well. So if you're a business that wants to launch your own custom e-commerce, then you are responsible for all generating all the traffic to that site and maintaining that traffic. And it's your marketing spend that's going to work and being put at risk to get that all done. In this case... Channel Fireball saying, hey, sign up for P- Binder POS. And one of the benefits is you're going to, your inventory will be exposed to a much larger audience than it would have been otherwise. And now, granted, that will be a competitive marketplace where you're only going to get a small slice of the sales. 
but it's still more uh, exposure than you would have had otherwise. And it will essentially be quote unquote for free. I mean, there's probably going to be fees for the sales, but at least the, the exposure, the, the presence of the inventory in the broader, in the broader marketplace will be free. Similarly to how it is on eBay or TCG. You, I can see this pitch to, um, to, you know, your local game store, uh, type of deal because for them, if they have cards that they want to sell, well, how are they listing them? They, they basically have eBay and TCG player, right? Because their your local store is not going to build their own custom website from scratch. They're not going to have the money for that. Um, I mean, it's not even close. So what are their alternatives? They just, they don't have a lot. Uh, and neither of those platforms are excellent. So if they get to sell on a, what they consider a quality platform that's going to get them better sales, um, and the worst cases they have to pitch, you know, the fees that they would pay to eBay or TCG player go to channel fireball instead, they probably don't care at all. Um, so I can, I, I, that makes sense to me from that angle. But uh, it's a little different than that. It's not really eBay TCG player versus binder POS. It's crystal commerce, Shopify, et cetera, versus binder POS. And the arg- well, and the argument is that binder POS offers them, a a combination of elements all at the same time. So if you go to the Binder POS website, their offering is buy listing, credit module, social media integration, singles database, event management, and website website kiosk. So presumably what they're saying is, we have a custom database of collectibles that you're going to get to leverage that's going to work the way you expect it to without you having to pay a developer to do a bunch of customization work on a pre-existing thing. It's going to be smoother, faster, more reliable than something like Crystal Commerce, which is notorious for not being those things. And it's going to have a bunch of nice, you know, social media management add-ons and buy listing tools, which would also not be cookie cutter available in something like a Shopify or a Wix, where they are very good for general commerce. If you want to sell t-shirts on Wix or Shopify, you're good to go. If you want to sell something very specific, they may have plugins that service your market, or they may not, depending on what you're selling. But if somebody can come up to you and say, listen, we've got all the the Star Wars uh, tabletop minis, we've got all the magic cards, we've got all the Pokemon cards, we keep it up to date with every new release, This this is the database you need, then that's a huge selling point because it saves them a ton of time. Oh yeah, I mean that's all. I, I agree with all that. I'm saying that if you are, if you are a company like ABU Games, for you, the Binder POS is in competition with Crystal Commerce uh, because you're a company who's large enough, who's doing enough sales that you can handle having your own website. But you know, building a custom platform for your sales is probably out of the question. You're you're going to buy somebody's product. Um, and so you are now have to make the consideration of which one you're going to go with. And it makes sense that competition at that level for my local store, they're not using crystal commerce using crystal commerce would involve launching their own website and having their own platform from which to sell cards. My local store doesn't do that. Well, none of, you know, and I would imagine most people's local stores don't do that. They take a handful of their singles that they want to, that they get traded in at the local store for which there isn't enough demand 
locally to turn them around and they sell them on TCG Player and eBay because some guy walks in and trades in, you know, an unglued Richard Garfield that's worth whatever, like 400 bucks or some nonsense. But who here is going to buy that, right? They have to put that online someplace. And the Crystal Commerce is just way out of their range. But if they get to join Channel Fireball sort of, well, I guess that's the question. Is were they would the did Channel Fireball write does it look like Channel Fireball is offering a marketplace that any store can join, similar to TCG player, right? Like that's they, how this was written. Yeah, they they, they made a very a point of outlining that you won't have to use binder POS to be part of that marketplace. But the subtext that I read through is, but you will be strongly encouraged to do so because they're going to hit wallop you over the head with how many synergies there are. Yeah. So, so, so it's not, it's not like channel fireball is trying to sell a crystal commerce like product to my local store no. to use as a platform to launch their own website. They're saying, come to our exchange, our new version of TCG player that is only for stores and has a better setup. And your local store can get in on this exchange and make use of those tools. And for them, that's I think that's where the competition lies between C- CFB and Binder POS and TCG player and eBay. Not quite. It's it's either or or both. They're, what they're saying is currently binder POS is is not it's not a competitor to TCG and eBay. Those are adjuncts. Typically, what you want out of a, a PO, POS system aimed at LGSs is, is that they integrate with eBay and TCG Player. Ideally, you you're, what they what a, your, the LGS needs is a one stop shop that fills their software and marketing needs. Management of inventory, tracking of sales, maybe tracking of, of client behavior if they're going that deep, the ability to sell online via an e-commerce, uh, online, uh, e-commerce store, and then the ability to sync that with potential accounts on eBay, Amazon, TCG Player, or elsewhere. And so the people that are operating in that space are trying to make that part of the ballgame. Now, what Channel Fireball is now doing is saying, post the merger, we're going to go further and we're going to launch our own TCG player competitor. And they're probably doing that for a couple of reasons. First of all, Troll and Toad already does this. Their, their website's atrocious, but it's functional. And Troll and Toad lets other sellers sell through their site alongside them. And that's a thing that has been very popular in the last 10 years of e-commerce driven a lot by sites like Amazon, where Amazon sells stuff, but they let you sell alongside them, but theirs always gets top billing. And if you're if you do anything interesting or uh, your sales go red hot, they're they're on the hot seat for monopolistic practices where they basically take over segments that are doing too well. And I suspect that part of what John's after here, is some of that action. Like I would think about the data that Channel Fireball is going to have access to that they don't get through their relationship with TCG Player. You know, you're a vendor on TCG Player. You know that there are relatively limited, um, you know, data views in terms of what happens on that platform. But if John runs the platform 
he knows not we were talking earlier about bestsellers what's the algorithm behind that what are the specifics he doesn't care (laughs) once he's got 50 100 150 300 a thousand vendors selling through his platform if he can get to that level he's got all the channel fireball sales data and he's got all the other guys data too so he he'll know exactly what the top card is at any given set across a broad segment of north american sales and that that kind of data can be crunched manipulated reinterpreted and used to plan future ventures part of me does wonder uh how valuable that data is in a in a game that's this small you know amazon obviously that data you know we're talking about a company worth more money than god like there's a lot of value in that data facebook twitter like you know we we are we are all aware of how valuable that data is magic cards still still, it feels like there's got to be an upper limit but it's still a billion (laughs) to a billion and a half dollar market per year uh, it's huge yeah yeah it's not facebook but, twitter amazon huge but it's big enough for the data to be worth money <laughs> well so it seems like there's probably diminishing returns at some point like if your channel fireball how much data how much more data do you need that you don't have true that we That's would a- truly be actionable for you that you don't already have like it's magic right like it- edh cards sell the new standard stuff <laughs> sells like I, I mean, I get that there's information, but like actually converting that into increased profits when you're already operating essentially as one of the absolute largest vendors in the space. I do kind of wonder about the value of that. Well, here's here's um, an example. If you if you operate a, a luxury car dealership, or you are at SCG or Channel Fireball occupying the higher the, the tier of the market that is high exposure, high price, you don't really know. How much better you would doing you would be doing with a different focus and a different marketing strategy, because it's very difficult to A/B test that. You know what I'm saying? The best the best John can can get access to with his current data profile is, okay, we we would normally sell this card at 100, but some people sell it at 70. I'm going to put a 10% sale on next week and see how this whether this card sells fast enough to justify the lower price. But you don't ever see 50% off sales at Channel Fireball. So they don't know how much better they would be doing if they were, say, using a mass cracking model like you see out of some parts of Europe and Asia. And this just gives them more data. And more importantly, it's relatively incidental because most of the, the dashboard that controls this platform needs to get built one way or the other. So the data is is basically getting paid for by the people that are paying commissions through that platform and the people that are paying to use Binder POS. This is just all gravy on top of that pie. Well, sure. I mean, it's not like it's useless. I was just sort of wondering. As a marketer, it's got me salivating. I'd love to have that data. I suppose. And maybe maybe I'm naive. Um, and I'm undervaluing how useful that truly would be, uh, which is certainly a, a valid, valid perspective here that I'm just clueless. That, that, uh, that. You know, I, I, I just on, on the Amazon thing, I just wanted to make one point. I actually just saw a story about this like a week or two ago that there was some company that sold a, a camera tripod 
for like, I don't know, however many dollars, we'll say 40. It was like an ultra popular camera tripod, like, I don't know, 40,000 reviews or something like that. And everyone loved it. So Amazon just knocked off the design to the uh, millimeter and then banned the sold it as an Amazon Basics and then knocked them off the platform. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's like, the Amazon uh, monopoly uh, thing that's getting challenged in courts. Gu- guillotine uh, <laughs> Jeff Bezos, but so yeah. the the bottom line here is that th- there's another angle to this. John is also signaling that he recognizes that collectibles is a much bigger world than just Magic the Gathering. Because a platform like Binder POS is not just about magic. It's about capturing the space around all collectibles. It's not tremendously different, really, than what we were trying to do with Shelf Life when we got funded for that. Because our perspective on that was that <clears throat> there was an interlocking, intersecting Venn diagram of nerds, jocks, and gamers that now dominated global culture. You know, seven of the top ten movies of all time in terms of global box office were all nerd movies. And that the combination of that being the center point of culture and the massive growth in the gaming industry overall globally was going to drive these legacy multi-generational brands into being the biggest things that ever were from a consumer uh, retail perspective and a platform that can capture the, all of your interests on that front, your video game interests, your, Nike shoe interest, your 80s Transformers, your Magic the Gathering, your Pokemon, etc. And can become the IGN of that space where you're managing your collection, researching those interests and interacting socially with other people would be next generation social commerce that would be a massive coup, right? So coming at it from the store software side of things, is one angle to approach it from. I think the consumer top-down approach is probably going to win out once somebody masters it and gets the right product launched. But I understand what he's going for here. Why why just be a store when you can be the platform? Well, that's the dream. I mean, I don't disagree with that. You know, it's essentially... And I I think you had the the comment earlier, which really sells it, which is... um, it's all essentially it's free real estate. You have already, you know, you're already paying to build out this infrastructure for your own website, for your own operations, because it's necessary. Uh, Why not see if you can get other companies to subsidize it for you? Um, So yeah, it makes sense to me. I, I, I do find just, just to roll back a little bit. I find the, the term merge to be kind of curious because you have to imagine Channel Fireball is considerably larger than this software company by like a massive degree, right? So like merge seems so weird. Wouldn't you just think of it as Channel Fireball buying the software company? Well, they don't have expertise in software as evidenced by their past adventures in said same. So they, yeah, but they the- put the CEO of Binder POS in charge of the new merged company because clearly he's impressed John. Well, don't you just buy the software company 
Well, they <laughs> leave the team in place. But, and but that's what they did. Like work. when you say merger, all you're saying is that there was some exchange of cash and shares to the founders of Binder POS. How much that was, who knows? I mean, that's a that's a private I, deal, so you may not have access to that information. To, but it, it's it's a, some, it's a merger. A merger doesn't mean fifty fifty. A merger just means one company is absorbing another. Well, sure. Well. I shouldn't say like, sure. For instance, Google I'm, Google makes acquisitions all the time. Like basically yes. any promising tech startup that really ca- like they flag as hot technology. Like you and I have got a quantum computer that works in our basement that <clears throat> where some portion of that engineering would be useful in grander projects. They we might have one million capitalization and they might swoop in and buy us for six million or something just because they want to make sure that they have access to that valve. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that will be one one millionth of their total organization value. It's still a merger. Uh, that's fine. I, I mean, there, I, there's no. I'm not. There's nothing for me to argue here. I'm making the point that I, I of course didn't expect a software company and. CFB to be 50-50. But I think of it, merging seems more, I don't know, cohesive. Whereas I think of like uh, acquisition, like, yeah, I know Google buys stuff all the time. But like, okay, we bought your company. You know, we gave the owners some stock in Google or Channel Fireball um and we agree to keep all the staff on we're gonna let them work with however much oversight we feel we agree is appropriate so we're not merging right like it's more just like we bought you i mean it's it's merge in the english sense of the word but it doesn't feel like a merge in the business sense of the word if that makes sense but again this is more of my lack of familiarity with the ins and outs of the business world than it is any a special sort of insight <laughs> as to my earlier point re- quickly googling whether dun and Sp- bradstreet had any insights in the size of the uh parent company i wouldn't put too much stock in that given that i just searched up channel fireball on there and it said one employee in twenty-eight thousand in sales uh, for channel fireball yeah so oh sure yeah i mean so re- research sites are notorious for having either out of date or erroneous information because they often don't have access to what they need from private companies the, I don't know. That sounds accurate. To however, me. I, I am curious how big you think Channel Fireball is. What do you think their sales are like? <sighs> See, you put me on the spot like this, and I don't really have a. I would. Ha- I would have to like. If I wanted to make a non-embarrassing guess, guess I would have to sit down and do some nope nap- napkin math to try and take a guess. So what? What do you want me to 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 put a number on here? Their their gross sales. Gro- per year. Gross sales. Uh, I mean, if they sell... And we're not including CFB events, obviously, because that was par- partitioned as well as a separate company, which may or may yes. not need to be rebooted when the time is right. And CFB only does car- only does magic, right? Mm, they do, do flesh they and blood now, too, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing other things as well. Uh, Pokemon, flesh and blood, and magic are listed on the site currently. Yeah, I mean, I saw that in the announcement. Yu-Gi-Oh! And, and, and Digimon. So basically the top five TCGs. I mean, ten grand a day puts them at three and a half million. Ten grand a day feels like it might be high. That feel. I mean, I feel like it could be. It could be a couple grand a day, five to six. Or if you told me it was thirty, I'd be a little thirty grand a day. I'd be a little surprised, but I guess it's possible. It's it's really hard. 
I figure they're probably about a $10 million a year company. So, I mean, that's $30,000 a day then. Yeah. The, see, this is the tricky part is I'm, th- I'm trying to think a little of less it like than sales that. per day. I'm trying to think of it, yeah, in, in terms of sales per day. But realistically, like the, obviously that's not how their sales work. They probably have days where they sell $2,000, $3,000 worth. And then they have like pre-release weekend where they sell a hundred you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cards. And it's, it's, so it's harder to, to map that in my brain. This is what I mean. I have no insight into vendor behavior. Let's put it this way. I I would bet, I would guess that the revenue ratio between CFB and POS was more than 50 to one might as might be a hundred or 200 to one. Like Binder POS, other than Channel Fireball, doesn't have any real notable clients listed on their site. If they had, I don't know, 50 or 100 clients, I'd be surprised. And each of them is not worth that much. So very much a company, it could easily have been a case where John spotted when he was, somebody was doing the research internally at Channel Fireball about what platform are we going to use? This one impressed them. And because it's so important to them, they started talking to them in depth and they were impressed by that team. We like the software, we like the team, but in the process of the research, they find out that they don't have very big of a book. So John goes, well, wait a second, they're not worth that much. Why don't we just buy these guys? And then we could do all this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the part of it, how I imagine that decision came to be is they're thinking about getting into the business with these guys. Maybe they, are, they, you know, they have gotten into business with them they kind of consider well we're the only real client they have and we think their product is decent let's just buy the damn thing and and kind of make a leap here that makes sense so the only other uh obviously we don't have the full facts on all of that yet we're going to try to get somebody from cfb to come join us sometime in the next couple months and have a chat about it it looks sounds like they're aiming for q2 to launch that platform which means you'll probably see it about this time next year if uh, my experience in web design is any indicator. I guess there's a question of, does it matter for the end user? You know, for the guy listening to this cast? Eh, I'm of the opinion that there are, there are already plenty of options for sales between social, eBay, TCG, Amazon, card market, and various buy lists. I'm not sure the market really needs the other option for a platform. And so I have my doubts about the process by which they will attract traffic to that platform. But if the platform is integrated into Channel Fireball the way that Troll and Toad's uh, you know, secondary seller market is in- integrated into their site, then they basically are just benefiting from additional traffic. And I think one of the things that happens here is Channel Fireball is sold out of a card. They still get commissions on the sales from the partners that are built into the platform which is nice. Um, you know, you don't ever want to be in a position where you can't, you know, leverage sales because you can't get, you don't have enough inventory left. If the product is hot, you'd rather be the platform collecting, collecting your cha-ching every time somebody else's register rings. So the only other piece of news we have is that we heard a vague rumor that somebody posted on, uh, I think it was Cabalcast or something, posted on Twitter today that Miniature Market's magic department was closing. We're not going to state that officially because I haven't heard back from our contacts at Miniature Market to comment on it. 
But as soon as we have information on that, we will certainly share it. That's been one of the the better places to buy singles. Uh, generally, up until recently, when they started having to charge sales tax and it was tougher for them to be comp- price competitive. Um, but I wonder if this is a COVID thing or a you know a mismanagement thing or just a general strategy like strategy pivot for the company. I buy from miniature market on the the D and D miniature side of things all the time. Buy board games from them and stuff. So. Uh, it would be sad to see them exit the uh, the magic scene. But uh, we'll have more information on that when we have it. Okay, good to know. Uh, I guess go use your... might want to consider using your store credit if you have any kicking around. Yep, definitely true. Uh, all right, where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and yourself. You guys can find me on Twitter at MGGCritic, as well as via occasional articles on MGGPrice.com. And I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Also, Pokemon and Flesh and Blood, since we have group buys going on that stuff this month as well. Yeah, uh, get in on your tulip market on the flesh and blood. <laughs> but those tools make people money one way or the Some of the people can make money on that. And I've paid our Discord very well so far. We shall see how Monarch goes. I am curious. I meant to go in and, and put my name in on that buy, and I should do that tonight before I go to bed. <laughs> um. Okay, well, this was... Uh... A podcast named MTG Fast Finance, which is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast, which brings us to the end of episode 255. Uh, Another good one for the books. And... I will see you next week, James. Thank you, Traps. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.